Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 12, please, this morning. Matthew 12. We haven't been here for this series. We're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're taking a high-level view. So most of the weeks, we've taken pretty large passages of, of Scripture, and we've pulled the themes out of them. And so we're going to do the same thing today. But the overarching theme of the book of Matthew is the kingdom. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We did spend, uh, we went a little more slowly through the Sermon on the Mount, because I think that's pretty foundational to understanding Matthew. But now we've seen these different kingdom themes. And we understand that through Christ, we do not belong to the kingdoms of this world. And uh, no matter what happens here uh, this year with our political situation and whatever happens with world powers, I'm engaged in all that. I think that it is important, and I think that Christians should be involved. However, my hope and your hope is not to be in the kingdom of this world. We belong to a greater kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. But his kingdom is not without controversy. Controversial, uncomfortable, counter-cultural, radical, disruptive. These are all words that I thought of that describe the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the teachings of Jesus. In fact, throughout his ministry, his ministry is marked by controversy. It seems like just about everywhere he went, people were riled up, either about what he said or something he did. Now, I want to give you just the application right off the get, right out of the get-go today so that you can see how this is pertinent to your life and to my life. Following Jesus brings a radical change in our lives. Now, if your life is not radically different than it was before, then I would wonder if you are following the same Jesus of the Bible. Now, for those of you that are like me, that you grew up in a Christian home, it's hard for you to mark a sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's maybe hard for you to mark a radical turning point because you grew up with the, the things of the faith. However, if you follow Jesus, your life will be radically different than it would have been had you not followed him. It would be a dangerous thing for someone to have a casual relationship with Jesus. It's a dangerous thing to have a casual relationship with Jesus. The reason for that is because if you truly understand his teachings, and we saw this before, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at that parable where he says you can't put, uh, you can't put old fabric on a new garment, and you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Do you remember that maybe? Just, just say yes so that I feel better, you know? Oh yeah, I remember that, yeah. So in, with, with that, what Jesus is bringing to our knowledge here is that you cannot just add Jesus to your way of living. Now, I have, ex I have witnessed that over the years. I've witnessed people that say, you know what? A little bit of religion would be good in my life. 
a little bit of church even, might be good in my life. So what happens is they associate with Christianity or they associate with the church for a period of time, but there's no, there's no root level, heart level, radical change in who they are. Well, you say, well, why not? Well, probably because they've never been born again. They've never been converted. They've never been changed by the gospel. Because that is what Jesus does. He brings into a new kingdom. So, if that has happened in your life, do not be surprised that that change in your life may be difficult for the world. And by the world, I mean the people around you, the people you know. It may be difficult for people to accept. And there may, you may face some, some disharmony and there may be some disruption in your normal social spheres. But the rewards of following Jesus are far greater than any discomfort you would experience along the way. So what I want you to see is how in Matthew chapter 12, there are about, I identified about four areas of significant, excuse me, of significant controversy that enter. Now, this passage, as best as I understand it, I looked at it carefully, and sometimes it's hard to piece together, but I believe what we're going to look at today are um, events that transpired in two days. So the first half of the chapter is one conversation. So you might be like, wow, we're looking at a lot of verses. I think it's important sometimes to study the Bible in larger chunks. That's because you pick up a flow. And in, in a whole, between 20 and 30 verses, you're seeing one conversation that took place. So it's helpful to get the whole context of the conversation. And then the second half seemed to happen on another day, whether it was the next day or a day shortly thereafter, we don't know. But it seems as if there are two days and two conversations that take place. So let's pick it up together, and let's find the first controversy. And if you look on the back of your notes today, you can follow along with me. You'll see where we are. But the first controversy involved the Sabbath day. It involved the Sabbath day. Now, what do we know about the Sabbath day? First of all, we know that the Sabbath was on what day? It's Saturday. It's the seventh day of the week. The Sabbath was established after the creation pattern. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. But on the seventh day, he what? He rested and he sanctified the Sabbath. He hallowed it. And then, this is interesting because this coincides with, I'm working my way right now. I just finished uh, this morning, actually, reading through the book of Exodus this year. I read through the book of Exodus and I noticed that the Sabbath is mentioned like I, it was there three or four times within just a few chapters. Moses giving Israel instruction about the Sabbath. And what he said, there was one verse that really jumped out about me. He told them that the Sabbath was given to the people of God as a sign. The Sabbath was a marker of the people of God and it was a sign to them. Now, this isn't a message on the Sabbath, but I believe that like all of the Old Testament law, the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, there are some Christians that would disagree with me, but I don't believe that Sunday is the new Sabbath. I believe, as Hebrews teaches, that Jesus is the new Sabbath. And rather than working to make our way into heaven, we simply enter into the Sabbath rest of Christ. 
That is what the Sabbath was intended to be a picture of. That is what the Sabbath was intended to signify. Now, if you would like to recognize Sunday as your Sabbath day, I don't think there is anything wrong with that. And, and that's perfectly fine. However, to the Jews, the Sabbath was very, very important. A, a crucially important day where they were supposed to not do any work. They weren't to, if you look at the, what I read this morning about the Sabbath in the book of Exodus was that in the Sabbath, you would not only not do any work, but he was specific. He says, do not kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. Don't do any work and don't, uh, don't kindle a fire. Now, the Jews took the Sabbath very, very seriously. So what they began to do was they began to build safeguards around the Sabbath. How many of you know what I mean by build safeguards around the Sabbath? What they would do was they say, well, we're not supposed to work. So because of that, we are going to make sure that we, we add a whole bunch of extra laws and extra regulations. Just I've read so much as that some, um, I've seen that some teachers in ancient times, some of the Jewish teachers in ancient times would do so much as say that a woman was not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath day for fear that if she saw a gray hair, she may pluck it out. And it was kind of a, a little saying that would go around. So I, I'm not sure the legitimacy of that, but there were all kinds of laws like that. They had nothing to do with, they had nothing to do with the, the law, but they had invented it because they, they took it so seriously. So now look what happens. Here we go. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn. Corn is, is the wheat, just so you have a good... I used to get confused by this as a kid. This is uh, uh, the, the British use of the... This is an English translation, obviously. The British use of corn applies to all grain. So there were no ears of corn on the cob in Israel in those days. They didn't grow there. So imagine this is wheat. And so it's sad, right, that there's no corn on the cob, but it wasn't. It's a North American thing. So in South America. So anyway, they're going through the, the, uh, the wheat field or the barley field, and his disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. So you imagine this intense labor that's going on in the moment, right? There's the, there's the, the kernels of, of grain, and what you do is it's ripe. So they just grab it, they slide it off of the, off the stalk, and you just rub that through your hands a little bit to get the chaff off of it. And you've got some nice little uh, kernels of grain right there. And so they just grab a handful, and, and they just pop it, chew it up. They take another step, they just keep going. And they're, they're going their way. Well, to the Pharisees, they're participating in harvest on the, on the Sabbath day. And so to them, grabbing that little bit of corn and eating it, oh, they might as well be plowing or tilling or harvesting. They might as well have the animals out there and the wagons filled up because they are performing this work on the Sabbath day. When they saw it, they said to them, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath day? But he said unto them, have ye not read what David did when he was hungry? And they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them that were with him, but only for the priests? Or have ye not read in the law how on the Sabbath day the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? That's an interesting one right there. 
because sacrifices are made on the Sabbath, right? So who is performing the sacrifices on the Sabbath? The priests are. So Jesus is giving them these riddles that they don't really know how to answer. And so, verse 6, But I say unto you that in this place, ooh, look at this, in this place is one greater than the temple. Who is he referring to? Himself. But if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned a guiltless. Now, first of all, in verse 6, he says he's greater than what? The temple. And now look at verse number 8. He's greater than what else? Sabbath day. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. He says that I am greater than the temple, and he says that I am greater than the Sabbath. This would have been very, very controversial to them. That you would set yourself up as greater than all these things. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. He had some kind of deformity and no use of his hand. Now it's the same day. They go to synagogue. This is their Saturday worship gathering. And so people are there gathered. And in there, there's a man with his withered hand. Now people were probably looking at Jesus. I've seen this scene dramatized uh, really well. And people are probably looking what is going to happen. Because up until now, everywhere Jesus has gone, what has he done? He's healed people. People have been sick. People have had diseases. And Jesus would heal them. And now we come to this moment in the Saturday worship in the synagogue where Jesus walks in. And apparently front and center, there's the man with the withered hand. And they look at Jesus. They look at the man. And nobody says anything. The, it's, you can feel the tension in the air. You can cut it with a knife. And Jesus breaks the silence, and he just asks them, or, or, or they break the silence, and they say, and in fact, this may have been a setup. They may have placed him there on purpose. Because they say to Jesus, is it lawful for you to, to heal on the Sabbath day? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days? The whole point was with this is they're trying to trap him. They're trying to accuse him. But Jesus says to him, to them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? If you had a precious animal that you depend and on the Sabbath day he falls into a pit, are you just going to leave him there to die on the Sabbath day? And I think in all of their minds, they knew, well, you know, that would be an exception. That would be allowed. That would be. So what does Jesus say? So how much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, stretch forth thy hand. And he stretched it forth. And it was restored whole, like as the other. And in verse 14, it, it, it says that, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council how they might destroy him. 
They say, we can't have you doing this. We can't have you healing people on the Sabbath. And so their next plan is, how will we get rid of him? How will we stop him? Isn't it ironic how angry they get every time Jesus does something so wonderful? Every time Jesus does something so amazing? Every time Jesus does something so transformative and they get angry. And they say, well, we have to stop this. And this is the, the, the controversy. And so what I, I just took one statement from this. And this is really important. And it's important for people to understand that I think the main lesson to apply from this is this. In the, in, if we're truly going to receive Jesus' kingdom, then even our deeply held religious views must come under the lordship of Jesus. Deeply held religious views must come under the lordship of Jesus. Is it possible to have the truth in your possession, but completely miss it? Everybody think about that. This has been one of the great problems of religion throughout the centuries. That you can be so close to the truth, but your expression of even Christianity can fail to come under the lordship of Jesus. And there are evidences of this. There are evidences of this in just about every religious, even Christian denomination that you'll find. You find it in Roman Catholicism. You also find it in, in Protestant expressions. You find people that value their traditions and their understanding of the church more than they value the actual teachings of Jesus. You find it in, um, I'm just amazed sometimes that you can go to, to churches today. Let's, let's stick with, um, uh, let's think about Protestant churches. You can go to Protestant churches today, in, and not in all cases, but in some cases where the gospel is not preached at all. There's no Jesus. There's no, there, there's no salvation. But then you can open their prayer book or their hymn book, and you can read rich doctrinal truth that goes back centuries, that talks about salvation and Christ but it's all been buried in centuries of tradition. Been lost in centuries of tradition. And if someone would go and disrupt it, say, well, we can't have this. This is how we understand it to be. You can find, you can find tradition and men's religious ideas blocking the power of Jesus in liberal denominations, and you can find it in ultra-conservative movements, where people value their views of what church and spirituality should be above what Jesus said. So we always be careful. In whatever, would you be willing, would you be willing, are you willing to surrender your views to Jesus and to his word? to come under the teachings of Jesus? It's a very, very important question. Well, and what Jesus says here is, I am greater 
than, I'm greater than the Sabbath. I'm greater than your temple. I'm greater than your denomination. I'm greater than your church. I'm greater than the Pope. I'm greater than the Archbishop. Because it is his kingdom. He reigns supreme. It is his word. And so one of the big controversies that enters is this controversy surrounding their religious views. The pure, simple words of Jesus. Always find yourself in a place where the words of Jesus reign supreme. What did he say? What does the word say? What does the word say? But the Pharisees' error has been perpetuated even till today, where people say, well, yes, the word is important, but here's the word and then here's our traditions. It's a very dangerous place to be in. So that's the first controversy in the passage. But now it, it ramps up because they get, they're getting really, really agitated with him. So notice what happens. Skip down. Verse number 14 through 21 shows us some <laughs> fulfillment of prophecy. Great passage. We're going to skip over it this morning, though. Cut down to verse 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. Now, Sometimes when you read the scriptures, you find people simply with health maladies that Jesus healed. This man, this, this person, his, his illness was inflicted by a demonic spirit. And so now we, we move from the religious arguments into the realm of spiritual powers and spiritual forces. And there's a fascinating discussion that takes place. So he heals this man who cannot speak, he cannot see, and now he's been completely healed. And the people, all the people, verse 23, all the people were amazed. And they said, is not this, this has to be who? This must be the Messiah. This must be the son of David. This must be the one who was promised to come. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Make a note. What are they doing immediately? Are they denying the miracles of Jesus? No. There's no denying the miracles. They gave up on that. They cannot deny that Jesus has power. That's interesting from a historical standpoint. Even the Jewish opponents of Jesus never said, they never said that he wasn't doing miracles. They said, they, they attributed his miracles to who? To Satan. They said, well, the prince of the demons gives him this power. Now, that's pretty bold of a statement, isn't it? They say, well, what you saw is not done by God, but that was done by the devil. Basically, they say this, Jesus is an agent of the devil. But I have to ask you, if you cannot accept Jesus for who he says he is, then what other alternative are you left with? It's been an apologetic point for years that this, this cop-out answer, 
well, Jesus wasn't the Son of God. He was just a good teacher. That's a cop-out answer. That's, that's what they call lame sauce nowadays. Okay? You can't say that. You can't. Just make sure you're awake. Um, you can't say that Jesus is just a... Adam gets really worked up when I do stuff like that. He just turns like shades of purple, pink, all kinds of colors. You cannot say that Jesus is a good teacher or a philosopher because he went around claiming to be the son of God. He went around doing these miracles. For you to say that, oh, well, Jesus was, even the people of the say they knew it, either, the, either Jesus is, you must, every person must, every person must come to terms with who Jesus really is. And so here, he is either exactly who he says he is, or as C.S. Lewis put it, he is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. But this, this good teacher, good man nonsense, we can have none of that. So they, they don't take the cop-out answer, but they go pretty severely. And they say, no, Jesus is... Uh, he's, he is performing miracles by the power of the devil. Now, that's a bold statement. Now, Mark, this is going to be important. Does anybody, do you know anybody that, said, that has ever said that before? Don't answer out loud or whatever, but I don't personally know anybody that's ever said that before. But these guys said that in that day. They literally saw what Jesus did, and they said, he is of the devil. Now, let's go on. So Jesus, verse 25, knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? Like, sure, Satan might do miraculous things, but why would he, why would he disrupt his own operatives? Why would he come and, and, and stop his own works? Jesus says, that's his answer to them. And if I by Beelzebub do cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? You have some exorcists, so who are they doing this by? Therefore, they shall be thy judge, your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods? except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. I love this passage. Does the devil have power? Go ahead, back me up one verse. Does the devil have power? He sure does. It shouldn't be underestimated. He is a, he, in the story, he is a strong man, but there is a man who is stronger than the strong man. He is the strongest man. And he goes in, he breaks down the door of the devil's house, he steals away the captives, sets them free, and he binds the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. What a, what a statement of authority and power. That's what Jesus is, is doing here. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. He that is not with me is against me. There is also, it is equally, it is equally futile to say, well, I'm just indifferent to who Jesus is. It's just, you know, if, if Jesus is good for you, that's great. 
Jesus says, no, you are either with me or you are against me. And every person that has never come to faith in Christ, you need to realize that up until that point, you have placed yourself against the Lord Jesus Christ. The act of indecision is in itself a decision. He that is not with me is against me. And he tells these Pharisees that. Wherefore, now verse 31 gets intense, and this is a passage that many people have had questions about. So let's look at it carefully. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. And this is commonly referred to as what? Who's ever heard of a short answer for this? It is the what? The un the unpardonable sin. How many of you have heard this before? You're familiar with this. How many of you have had questions over this before? People have asked you, or you've struggled, like, oh. Usually what happens here is somebody, now this is a strong statement by Jesus, and somebody, many times people will come and they'll say, well, I don't know if I can be saved because maybe what if I have committed the unpardonable sin? How many of you have been faced with that question or even wondered that yourself, Okay. All right, well, I think it's important to understand the passage. What happened in the passage? So there's, I think there are two understandings of this. Well, I'll give you three, which I don't think, the, I'll give you the one that I don't think makes any sense. In this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, um, I don't think, it, it, it doesn't make sense that somebody could say something like, oh, the Holy Spirit, you know, I don't worship him. All right, you've just committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's, it's unpardonable. I don't think that's the interpretation at all. I think that's one of two other possibilities. Number one, the unpardonable sin was specific to this event. In other words, these people literally had Jesus perform miracles in front of them. They literally saw him do works, and rather than give glory to God, they ascribe his work to who? Satan. They say, this is not the work of the Spirit of God, this is the work of Satan. And by thus doing, they are committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They are ascribing the, the, the visible work of the Lord Jesus to the devil. Now, would that be a replicable event? Could, could that be reproduced today? Well, if that's the definition, then no, it couldn't be, because Jesus is not here. The, the, the powerful demonstration of the Holy Spirit through Christ is not with us today. So one way of understanding the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to say, well, that, that um, Jesus is, was there. He performed these miracles and the, the opposition rejected him. And he says, that cannot be forgiven of you. So that's one understanding that I think is plausible. I could, I could sign up for that. There's another one. Another understanding that I think also makes sense. And that would be this. It would be, what is it that the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of men and women? What is it that the Holy Spirit does? 
He connects. He reveals to us Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that brings people to the moment of salvation. It is the Holy Spirit that comes and works on a person's heart and shows you that you are a sinner, that you need to be saved. So some people would interpret this as what this is, is when the Holy Spirit brings a person to the point where they know that they need to receive Jesus. The Holy Spirit has brought them to that point, yet they knowingly and willfully, knowing who Jesus is, knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work in their life, they knowingly and willingly reject the work of the Holy Spirit. That it's clear, it's evident, just like it was to these... Now, would that be replicable today? In the, if it's, then it would be. So I would say this to those that would say, well, I, I don't know. I would say, well, if right now, if at any point in your time, the Holy Spirit is showing you that you need to be saved and has given you the way of salvation, you can be confident that you've not committed that sin because he's still at work in your heart. But to die, to die with the knowledge of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit Knowing what Christ has done, can there be any greater sin than to know who Jesus is and yet to still reject him? And that, Jesus says, is unforgivable. Do not deny the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart. There are people, there are young people that sit under preaching sometimes from the time they're a child till they grow old. And they hear God speaking to their heart. They know they need salvation. Yet they just say no. They say no. Is God obligated to continue to offer that? Not at all. Not at all. There is a point at which I also was reading in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh and how his heart was hardened. And through, there was this, it seemed as if you read the passage that, that God, God shows his power to Pharaoh and it hardens Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes Pharaoh's heart is hard, and then sometimes it says that God hardened his heart. And I understand that as, as God acted and started to bring things to pass, it hardened his heart. There are some people that actually the more they hear the preaching of the gospel, it's, they don't get softer, they get harder. They get harder. And sometimes, the, and you see with these people, sometimes the greatest and most dangerous opposition comes from those who claim to God. The book of Hebrews, he describes it this way. The people who tasted of the, of the, of the heavens, they, they came so close. Be careful. Sometimes, sometimes people hear, and God starts to draw them, but when your heart becomes hard, it doesn't get easier. But that also applies to Christians with the searing of the conscience and the hardening of our hearts. Speak, answer God's work now, what God is doing. So Jesus deals with them with this, and he warns them. Now we, I want to come down to, uh, we'll skip through a little bit more. Verse, skip down with me to verse number, uh, verse number 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, and they said, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Why don't you show us a sign, Jesus? But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, you want a sign? What is a sign? What is the sign that Jesus gave us? It's his death and his resurrection. It's his death and his resurrection. For those that would say, well, God, I will believe in God if you make the lightning flash right now. Well, that is not a heart. That is not a sincere heart. That is a heart looking to disprove, not a heart looking to receive. And Jesus says there will be a sign given. Just like Jonah spent three days in that fish, so I'll be three days in the earth. And we know Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And he says in verse 41, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation, shall condemn it, because they repented. They repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, the greater than Jonah is here. So he warns them. So, this, so there's this controversy about the Sabbath, this controversy about the Holy Spirit. Then, then thirdly, and I'll go quickly through this one because it's just a short passage. He warns them of having religion without conversion. Religion without conversion. This is a fascinating verse. Look at verse 43. Now, remember, there was recently, they've been talking about evil spirits and demonic forces. Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, and when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnish, that garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. What is he saying? The Pharisees, if you, if you remember a little bit ago, the Pharisees, they would do this demon casting out as well. They would, they would do this. In fact, Jesus says in another passage, Woe to you Pharisees, because you go to help somebody, and you teach them ways, but you make them, what is it, twofold or whatever, sevenfold the child of the devil or the child of hell, he says. Like, what you are doing is actually more harmful than good. Is it possible for, for a spiritual or a religious experience to be worse for someone? Absolutely. It would have been better had that person never even encountered that church or that organization or whatever. Because religion without conversion is especially dangerous. So what happens? Well, let's just use an example here. Well, your life is a mess, okay? Well, come on. Come into my church or come into my organization, and we will teach you our ways, and we will make your life better, and we will get all the bad stuff out of your life. We will clean you up. We will reform you. We will reform you. And what starts to happen? Well, a little self-discipline in their life. A little bit of uh, regiment. A little bit of uh, good works things start to look a little bit better, do they not? I mean, is there not an improvement? I mean, if you fulfill religious duties and exercises, your life starts to look a little bit better. You reform a little bit. But when all the things are emptied, there's no putting Jesus back inside. There's no surrendering of the life to Jesus and his lordship. 
And so what happens if we, you can empty all the sin and the bad things out of your life for a moment, but Jesus says what happens is the end ends up being worse. Because if you empty all of the influences out, but you never are filled with the Spirit, you're never given to the control of Jesus, then what happens is it all just comes back in a different form and takes a different grip and is more destructive. It's the, 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 like sobering passages that people, people, remember, if you had looked at, you, you got to put all this in its context. If you had looked at the Pharisees, I mean, they were obsessed with religion. They were obsessed with the law. They were obsessed with people doing all the things they were supposed to do. And Jesus is saying, it is going to be worse in the judgment for you people than it will be for the most wicked nations you could ever have thought of. The people of Nineveh who did terrible, terrible things, they repented and found salvation. But all of the people secure in their religion. Listen, if you have friends or family that are, that are bound up in religion, those are the people you should pray for the most. Those are the people you should pray for the most because religion without a true relationship with Jesus is the most dangerous place that any person can find themselves. Now, so what's the, what's the good part now at the end? It all, 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 these are, all of these things are controversial. But I love this little episode at the very end. He finishes the conversation, and it's like, where did this come from? Verse 46. While he yet talked to the people. I mean, he's literally finishing this speech, this serious speech. And somebody felt like it was time to interrupt him. Like, oh, we got, we got to get through. We got to give him this message. And so they come up and they say, Jesus, your mom and your brothers, they're waiting for you. They'd like to talk with you. So Jesus gets given his talk. He's given his message. He's having this conversation. He's telling them these important things. They're like, hey, oh, Jesus, are you finished? Because your mom and your brothers, they need to talk with you. Now, what were they assuming? They're assuming that the, the, the Mary... And uh, James and Jude and the other siblings of Jesus, they're assuming that they get what? Like preferential status, right? That they would get, they get first place. Now, Jesus loved them and he treated them well, but he wants to teach them this final principle here. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? Verse 48, and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples. And he said, behold, my mother and my brethren, if you'd allow me, behold, this is my family. This is my family. For whosoever shall do the will of my father, which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. Our connection to Jesus is greater than any other relationship. Our connection to Jesus is greater than any other relationship. And Jesus taught that. And the closest, did Jesus have a special care for Mary, his mother? Yeah, without question. 
on the cross as he's dying. As he's dying on the cross, he says, please care for my, care. he says to John, this is your mother now. Take care of her. Behold thy mother. Jesus did have a, he did. However, he's teaching them here that the most, that the, the, the tightest bond is not in human connection. The closest bond is in connection to Christ. It's in relationship to Christ. Is that a controversial message? It is. Jesus said that sometimes he would, following Christ, would even divide families. Now, we should never seek that. We should never look for that. But that does sometimes happen. Why? Because we understand that our closest relationship is in the family of Christ. It's to know Christ. But then that also means this, that as, the, as, as David the psalmist said, if my father and my mother cast me out, then the Lord will pick me up. That we have in Christ, yes, our relationship with him is greater than any human connection, but it is more secure than any human connection. It is indestructible. You will never be disowned by the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never be rejected by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you come to him, if you accept him for who he is, if you have received him, you have ultimate security. He said, yes, when you follow me, you may face difficulties. You may face struggles, but you will be mine now and forever. We belong to him and he belongs to us. There is an eternal bond of security between us and Christ. And then there are relationships that extend from that. Because we are united in Christ, we are united in the family of God. Now, this is a way of thinking that only those who know Christ truly understand. Sometimes, from an outside perspective, it looks a little strange. Sometimes it... It's difficult for people to understand. However, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, draws us to Christ, we enter in the greatest life that we could possibly have in the family of Christ. So, just a couple of questions for you. First of all, have you entered into that relationship with Christ? Has your... Is your Hopefully your heart is not hard like the Pharisees. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you numerous times, and right now you feel a softened heart again, would you receive Christ today? Would you admit to him that you cannot save yourself, that you believe he died for you, and you put your faith in him alone? If you've never done that, do that this morning. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't trust your religion. Don't trust your way. Don't tr trust your family. Put your faith in Christ alone. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the... He's greater than the church. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the Sabbath. He's greater than everything. Come to him. And then the encouragement for those of us who have, maybe Jesus, following Jesus, brought some controversy into your life. Maybe it's brought some difficulty. Maybe it's brought some opposition in, in some relationships. Hey, it's okay. This morning, just lean into the fact that you belong to Jesus. He looks at you and he says, that's my child. That's my family. That's my son. That's my daughter. That's my brother. 
That's my sister. That's my mother. These are my people. So just be encouraged this morning. Rejoice this morning that you belong to Christ. Would you bow your heads with me as we come to this time of prayer? Please bow your heads and close your eyes. We'll have just a quiet moment. If you've never been, if you've never been saved, would you receive Christ right now? If God is speaking to your heart and you've never, by faith alone, received Jesus, you can pray. You can pray with me right now. If you're ready, would you pray something like this? Say, Dear God, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I believe, Jesus, that you died for my sin, and I ask you to save me. Please forgive me. I believe in you and you alone. Lord, I put my trust in you. Would you do that right now? Just pray something like that. Say, yes, Jesus, I'm yours. And then Christians, let's just take a moment now at the close of the service, and let's just pray. I don't know what you're facing, what difficulty you come up against what controversy may have entered into your life. But just take a minute this morning and just re refocus on that relationship that you have with Christ. That He says to you, you are my family. You belong to me. Let's just have a moment of prayer together. The truths that we read this morning, and Lord, the truth that we listened to. God, we thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that if someone in here hasn't put their faith in you, that today would be the day that they put their faith in you trust you to be their savior lord i pray that for those of us who have that we would live each day in faith lord that we live each day growing in our faith trusting you in jesus name amen we are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today if you've been blessed by the message or if you have placed your faith in jesus today we want to hear from you maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with jesus please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.